Hello, this is the HSJ Health Check podcast. I'm your host, Annabelle Collins, and I'm joined by Henry Anderson and James Illman. This week, we're looking to the future and specifically what's being done to help the NHS this winter and why the government's winter fund isn't all it's cracked up to be. We'll cover finances, elective targets and a new outpatient strategy expected before the end of the year. Let's start with Rishi Sunak's Winter Fund. And Henry, you reported on this for us earlier this week. Perhaps we could start with what's been promised by the government. Hello. Yeah, so the government um, has promised £200 million for winter to help the NHS kind of stay afloat over the the busy festive season, um, where it always struggles. It's kind of a a usual pattern in which the government uh, finds some money uh, and announces it ahead of winter um, and it tends to be for kind of more beds or or um, care outside of hospital uh, sort of privately people in the NHS say what often happens is it just gets used to kind of plug various spending gaps um, or alternatively it kind of arrives in February when it's too late to, to be of any use but what's interesting this time is that the government has announced their 200 million um, but NHS England has privately told um, uh, Integrated Care Systems Trust that basically the money um, won't be used for expanding services as normal um, but will instead be held back and used to cover the cost of industrial action. Um, so strike action, the kind of cost of employing extra cover, consultant cover, etc. Um, and actually an email sent by NHS England last week explicitly says the money, quote, will not be available to support new initiatives. And what's the reaction been to this, Henry? I imagine people are pretty frustrated. Yeah, I think there's a, some concern about the messaging because, you know, some people um have, have have assumed this money is for you know getting extra staff and opening new beds ahead of winter the finance directors have been have been told no it's not it's to cover existing costs and the deficits that run up to strike action um though as one uh finance director put it to me it's basically it's a drop in the ocean because we've seen um you know some ics's like greater manchester has is already 100 million pounds behind its financial plan. Um, so there goes half of the, the winter fund, just to give you a sense of scale. Um, they probably need to come up with some more um, if that's going to be the kind of answer to the various financial problems. But there's a separate concern that I've heard from some, which is that actually the, the kind of financial problems are so great that this winter is going to be very difficult because they're not able to kind of put that money in ahead of winter in um, expanding services to kind of take the pressure on the hospitals when they're when they're busiest. Yeah, I think it's also worth looking at um, the announcement in both kind of political terms and in historic terms. And as as you mentioned already, Henry, rightly, um, quite often uh, these these funds are uh, they pop up and then uh, a uh, they sound like a lot of money uh, into the general public. But when you actually look at them in, in terms of the NHS, the NHS is always dealing in billions, tens of billions, hundreds of billions uh, rather than uh, millions. So it's always a bit of a drop in the ocean. And even in even in less strained times, this has happened where they say, here's 200 million to uh, help the NHS over winter 
um, and it all ends up being used to plug bottom lines, whether it was meant for that or not. And and what I, I think what's quite different about this winter is there 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 there's there's not even any pretense that this is about new stuff. It's it's I, I mean certainly uh, within the NHS world anyway, it's like this is this is to prop up um, the bottom lines, uh, and obviously the, the strike action's incredibly expensive. And then there's also it's it's the these the winter funding announcement is basically in the diary each year uh, for uh, the Department of Health to kind of um, get some nice headlines. It's like something needs to be done. Aha, well, look, we're, we're doing something. Yeah, I think that's it. I think it's the fact it's so explicitly being being badged as, 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 as not really for winter and um, for the classic winter pressures, um, whereas before that might have been more implicit. Um, I think there's the, the government when they put out their press release was was kind of hinting at this, but it wasn't very explicit. Was that there is still quite a big push to go to continue elective activity through through winter, um, because obviously the elective kind of waiting list is such a huge political issue um, that maybe the kind of the government and NH, NHS England see this money as you know kind of helping to continue that. But again, it just comes back to yeah, as you say, this is not a very large amount of money um, in kind of NHS in NHS terms. And perhaps, Henry, you could help set the scene a little bit more as to the current financial health of, of the NHS in particular systems. What, how, how are things looking at the moment? Yeah, I, I think that the short answer is probably not, not particularly rosy. Um, the we reported last week that um, integrated care systems which is basically um nhs trusts plus um, integrated care boards who are the kind of the commissioning bodies have collectively overspent their budgets by 800 million um in the first four months of the year so of the financial year so that's the four months to august um yeah so this is obviously on top of any planned deficits, this is, is is kind of they've fallen behind what they were originally planning. Um, a very crude extrapolation in which you kind of assume that spending continues at its current rate. Um, you know that that suggests there is going to be a deficit of kind of two and a half billion pounds over and above the initial planned deficit, which was I think was about seven hundred million. So it's so it's quite a big problem. The the the, the kind of major caveat is that. Uh, there is always a kind of a degree of game playing towards the end of the year where NHS England will find some extra cash and hand that out and that makes the financial position look better. I think the question this time is ICS has went into the year planning a deficit of around £700 million. NHS England has already had to find money, we don't know where from, to cover that. This kind of scale of overspending um, means that it's inevitably going to create a lot of pressure elsewhere in NHS England's budgets um, to kind of balance balance the, uh, yeah, to, to basically find the cash to fund that overspend. And the assumptions at the beginning of the year, yeah, uh, were, 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 were quite different perhaps than, I, I can't remember off the top of my head what the inflation in uh, uh, assumption was but um and equally with industrial action so they're always quite fanciful at the beginning of the year anyway so to some degree i guess it's not a surprise that the system's falling behind but 
would it be fair to say that the 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 kind of the the, the amount is sh shocking people are people surprised or yeah i think there's, there's two things to probably highlight the first is yeah absolutely the plans um fanciful is a kind of some people are a bit more critical in private about these plans but they yeah. make us to make a number of assumptions that um for example in you know um around inflation i think they're actually funded um for around three percent um, growth in the tariff system and obviously we know inflation is far higher than that um things around uh, the particular pressures are basically industrial action which i'll come to in a second inflation um and higher care costs for um continuing healthcare, which is a system where the nhs basically funds um care for people with conditions like dementia um, and drugs cost prescribing and in both of those two areas the the rates of growth they were asked to assume are far lower than the rates that people are actually seeing in practice um as you said there was a kind of all the shenanigans at the start of the year in which i think around 15 all but 15 systems um, eventually said they would break even um so there were 15 that put in deficit plans and they actually seemed to be you know because they kind of arguably they would argue that the plans were more realistic um they couldn't kind of get them to break even that they don't seem to be as far behind um as the other systems where they were meant to be and that brings me to the next point which is industrial action because you, you see in, in a number of cases actually the gap the financial gap is largely not entirely but largely down to the cost of industrial action um and this is where this uh, letter from NHS England uh, last week is interesting because um, as I'm sure people know and James and I have written about this earlier in the year NHS England negotiated a deal with the Treasury um, to allow them to basically as a sort of strikes rescue package effectively for for, uh, for trusts and what that involved is um, they lowered the elective activity target by two percentage points from 107% uh, to 105% of pre-COVID um, levels. And basically what that allowed to do, what that allowed the NHS to do was transfer some of the money given for elective recovery by the treasury to the NHS. It allowed them to pay that to trusts, even though they hadn't done the elective activity. And the reason they hadn't done that was because of the strikes. Now that deal, only covered the April strikes. So they'd already been a 2% hit just from April. And obviously we've had strikes um, since then. And the letter um, says that the, the NHS England is in discussion with the government to agree the estimated impact for further industrial action that's happened since April 20, uh, 2023. The interesting thing, um, I'm sure James will be able to chip in as well with it, from my perspective is that there's some suggestion this time that they, yes, they might lower the activity target again, um, which would, would allow that transfer of funds. Um, but crucially, this time there's a suggestion that there might be new money, a further injection of cash into the health service to basically cover off the cost of industrial action and enable them to carry on doing elective work. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see how they play this because obviously the elective target isn't just a big deal for the NHS now it's also going 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 back to politics of winter there's the politics of the waiting list now Rishi Sunak's made it one of his um his his big five pledges to get the waiting list coming down by next year um that 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 probably uh 
helps assist um, the government in in helping out the NHS, and, and particularly as they're in a position where I mean we're on a on another strike day today, recording this on Thursday, um, where the strikes just seem to keep on coming, and uh, it it's yeah it it would be very strange to think that anything else is going to happen aside from the waiting list position deteriorating even more and um, so some way of keeping elective activity at an optimal level through winter is crucial and that in itself in you know years gone by has been a really really tough ask there's, there's been years gone by where it's been kind of blanket moratoriums on elective work during the winter. Yeah, I think that's the dilemma for NHS England is because, you know, they have this sort of deteriorating financial position. Um, but then at the same time, there is this political, you know, un imperative also, you know, that's what they want to do is carry on kind of digging into and churning through the elective waiting list. So the, the uh, NHS England and the wider government has, has the same problem, which is, you know, do you kind of ease off on the elective work to try and kind of keep the finances in check or do you kind of go go ahead on the elective work in which case the government the treasury probably do need to provide some extra support to kind of make to kind of fill those those gaps in financial plans that have been created by the strikes and then there's of course there's the emergency care position i mean if, if things start deteriorating even further it, it won't even be a choice it won't matter even how much money gets put towards it they'll you know a lot of places will have to put elective work on hold because the demand coming through the front door will just be uh, too great and i wonder whether privately either of you have heard our, our nhs england trying to put kind of encourage the government to try and put an end to strike action because that would obviously be a massive um, factor in alleviating some of this pressure um, at the moment it really doesn't feel like there's there's an end in sight i'm not wholly sure what the i mean i everyone's been encouraging talks to continue but people seem to be uh taking their positions on that rather big fence where no one seems to want to side either with the bma or the government everyone just says everyone must get back round the table but never really um goes any further but i you know in many ways that's a fair position um to take i i, I don't think nhs england would um, get much value out of um, picking a side. I mean, it does seem that the government has kind of, they're already laying, they're kind of preparing the ground for missing the elective target, aren't they? Because so oh, soon, exactly. I think the other week has basically said we're not going to, they've obviously taken a decision that they are not going to kind of, um, as they would put it, bow down to the, the BMA's demands. Um, and it seems, at least publicly so far, that might change, that they are prepared to kind of sacrifice the elective target um, as a result of that. Agreed. Um, and as I also said in, in the intro later this year, I think in December, there is expected to be a new outpatient strategy. And James, Correct. you've been reporting on this this week. Um, what does this say, this new strategy? Yeah, well, we don't know. I mean, I mean the, the, the strategy itself is uh, will be published in December. What we were looking at this week was the through the summer, uh, the Royal College of Physicians, which is working in partnership with NHS England on uh, developing a strategies, held various kind of summit days, um, and I had a good sit down interview with um, Theresa Barnes and John 
uh, Dean uh, T Teresa is the uh, the outpatient's lead at the Royal College, and um, uh, John Dean is also heavily involved in this um, yeah in this outpatient's review as well. And one of the the kind of big things that that appears to be coming down the track is that national leaders are looking to kind of greatly reduce the number of direct hospital referrals made by GP by um, uh, increasing an approach known as advice and guidance or ANG for short, uh, which involves GPs sending patients details to the uh, to the specialist consultants and then there's a conversation first between the uh, consultant and the GP uh, as to what the best course of action is and and the, the the idea is that this this means you get lots of uh, unnecessary referrals uh, which don't come into the system so it cuts unnecessary referrals and also if the system is working well uh, it can mean that the patient gets their uh, advice or um, whatever intervention they need quicker because um, it, it can be far quicker for a GP to have this conversation with um, a consultant than it can to get to that position uh, via going into the on, on onto the referral to treatment pathway um, and and being referred into secondary care, which as, as we know can be a very lengthy process and one that's getting longer all the time. So so that's that's the kind of the attraction, if you like. Um, and what um, uh, Theresa Barnes was saying was that she said that there's, there's, there's a case for ANG to be used, quote, in preference to direct referrals in the vast number of cases where um, uh, where it's clinically appropriate. Very important that it is clinically appropriate. There are going to be lots of referrals that just need to keep on going straight into the system because, um, you know, person turns up at GP, suspect of cancer, whatever it is, uh, something very uh, critical is going on and they just need that person to get into the system as quickly as possible via a direct referral. But obviously there's a lot of cases that aren't like that and that's where this kind of two-way conversation between the GP and the uh, consultant um, you know should be able to uh, uh, to be productive. However there's always a but uh, and there are many buts in this story um, and the first but is that um, as the system works at the moment, neither the GP nor their uh, acute sector counterparts are properly funded to do this work. So it's like just work coming in on top of other stuff. So both the GP and the specialists have their normal cases going on, and then there's these advice and guidance conversations going on, which somehow, which at the moment, so what the RCP is saying, uh, the Royal College of Physicians, is, you know, we need to change uh, the way services are commissioned to kind of carve out time for um, uh, clinicians in both primary and secondary care to do this work and that's that's really critical and if that doesn't happen then you know you're building building a system on a, a pretty shoddy uh, foundation um, and then the you know it's very interesting. It's a very kind of divisive topic. There are people who who think the system can work really well, um, and that including in in the GP world, 
but then the Royal College of GPs and um, Healthwatch England both kind of came out after the story. Uh, had, um, so we published it in HSJ and then the, uh, 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 the Telegraph picked it up and speaking to the Telegraph, both the Royal College of GPs and um, Healthwatch England said, you know, yes, when the system works well, we see the benefits, but uh, it can also act as a barrier to a patient getting in to the secondary care system that they or when they really need care and just as worryingly really kind of create a, a potentially create a hidden waiting list where patients haven't been directly referred into the system but at the same time they haven't got a satisfactory answer out of the whole advice and guidance process so they're just in this no man's land and what you know some people at the more kind of skeptical end are saying is this is just going to delay a lot of clock starts so people are going to be put in this oh we'll we'll ask the um the consultant what they think uh, and kind of there'll be a kind of ping pong of exchanges between and then eventually they'll go oh this person needs to be referred and actually that person should have been referred many many weeks earlier and and it's just delayed the clock start in the in in in, in the kind of technical parlance so yeah it's been um it's definitely going to be a debate uh that rumbles on because you know outpatient reform um uh there's there's a lowry painting called uh the outpatient's hall um, where it's just lots of people sitting in an outpatient hall, and that that painting was done in 1952, and um, there are still parts of the outpatient system which haven't really moved on very much since then. And that's that's something that there is. If there is one thing we can all agree on, it's that the outpatient system needs serious um, reform, uh, and that's something that you know NHS England's been trying to do for a while. But um, it's not going to be easy not least in the current environment. So um, I spoke to NHS providers about all this to get the kind of trust perspective. And they, you know, they agree with the direction of travel, et cetera, et cetera. However, um, our, you know, we're going into winter. This would be a really busy winter anyway. Slap on top of that industrial action, flu, COVID, all the standard winter pressures. And then when are people going to have the um, the kind of headspace to uh, to do this work, which will require, you know, fundamental changes to commissioning systems and also to cultures. You know, if you want to push mm -hmm. care away from the um, from the centre, from the secondary care out into the community, which is what a lot of these reforms are, are talking are talking about doing um then your yeah that's a big cultural change the commissioning change the changes to how the finances work this is you know let's not underestimate what reforming outpatients looks like do trusts have the headroom to do that reform at the moment a lot of them would say no we don't but then you'd say, but oh, this needs to happen. So I guess the onus is really on how does NHS England come to a point where it can incentivize trusts to engage with this process? And I, I think that is going to be, yeah, um, quite a lot of 
what which which way this goes whether this becomes a, a a strategy a review that actually delivers you know demonstrable change or, or just becomes another outpatient strategy or another you know there's so many of these strategies that just end mm, up getting yeah. shelved and everyone's and as like, I think the comments mm. said under your story um were actually really interesting and there's an interesting debate and I, I actually learned quite a lot from them but some people are already doing this and are going oh it worked really really well for us yes and then other people are going oh it's not going to work it's just going to add to the pressure at the front door it's going to it's going to make things worse I think maybe it maybe it just depends on where you're working and what relationships are like already definitely Um, a lot about that that precise thing the mm. relationships and and I think a lot of service delivery unfortunately does come down to those kind of things mm. it's, it's actually quite hard to get a kind of template and and roll it out and expect uniform delivery everywhere because you know relationships are different everywhere and uh, and so yeah in, in the places where it works well so it's kind of at the moment it's sort of a voluntarily done thing ANG mm. um uh, and but but what NHS England and the Royal College of Physicians are, are clearly um, keen on doing is sort of just uh, expanding it significantly, um, a bit like they want to do with patient-initiated follow-ups, which is another one of the um, uh, the sort of uh, key cornerstones of outpatient reform. Is this 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 idea that yeah more emphasis is put on the patient to decide when and if they need to follow up appointments and um yeah that 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 too mm. is a lot about relationships and uh and and, and and that too is also something that happens at the moment but NHS England wants to um yeah roll out on formalize it maybe yeah yeah I also just wanted to ask do you think December's a bit late to publish this would um, it not be better to have it before the sort of true chaos starts kind of yeah which is often I see around the well, well, time in, in different so so just to there are um there are two bits of work really there's the outpatient um what's it called transformation and recovery program it's an mm. nhs england program and that program is about how do we make demonstrable improvements on our patients now. One of the key aims of that is to cut unnecessary follow-ups by 25%. Um, and, and and that's a target that they had last year and missed. So they've just slapped it back in the planning guidance this year. And I, I suspect um, may well miss again. Um, but so there's that piece of work. And then the, the piece of work which the Royal College is involved in is really a five to 10 year strategy. So yes, it's coming out in December, but and and yes there will be stuff in there where they'll say we can crack on with this right now but it's more about um and it's a very sensible piece of work and i think it's commendable that the royal college are involved in it it gives you good kind of physician engagement um and you know judging by the 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 sort of attendee list at the various summits there's been a lot of engagement with other kind of uh, with patient groups and, and and so on and so forth um but yeah it's a it's a five to ten year plan so yes it's being okay. December does in some ways feel like a strange time of year to be publishing it because if you publish something in December everyone's going to go oh we don't even have time to read it let alone yeah but but, but it is yeah yeah I so see what I you're see, saying I yeah. see your point yeah. but 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 this is a kind of mid to long term plan as not a to... let's sort out the 
winter nope. slash let's try and like, no. keep our heads above the water this winter yeah um, got it all right well thanks very much james and thank you henry um i think it's time to wrap up the podcast this week but thanks very much for listening don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already and we'll see you next week